I've always been really fascinated by, you know, the hero's journey, those kind of classic masculine quest narratives, sort of both seduced by them and also kind of reading them in a critical way and thinking about how they have a very particular philosophy. You're listening to the Wheeler Centre podcast. My name is Jason Steger. I edit the books pages of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, and it's a great pleasure today to be talking to Emily Bitto about her second novel, Wild Abandoned. Emily, of course, won the Stella Prize for her first novel, The Strays. Uh, before we start, I would like to acknowledge that I'm joining you from the land of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present and to the elders of all communities this conversation reaches. This conversation is part of the Melbourne City Reads initiative. It is presented by the Wheeler Centre and supported by the City of Melbourne, Victorian Government and ABC Radio Melbourne. Hello, Emily. Hi, <laughs> I'm well, how are you? I'm very well indeed. Congratulations on Wild Abandon, which is, um, as I said, the second novel. Um, it struck me, though, that there are distinct similarities, in a sense, between um, Wild Abandon and The Strays. Um, Wild Abandon tells the story of 22-year-old Will, who's been dumped by um, his girlfriend, Laura, and in that classic uh, way, he legs it to the United States to get more experience. Um, he he first starts off in New York where he um, catches up with an old family friend. Well, who ha he has a very uh, strained relationship with this bloke, but um, and indulges in an excess of drink, drugs, sex and bad art, I think is possibly the right way to put it. And then um, after he's found it all a bit much and, and things have got a bit tense, uh, um, Will takes to the road and fetches up in Ohio in the company of an old friend from his town uh, in Victoria. But through her and her husband, he falls in with a guy called Wayne Gage, who has his own private zoo. Um, he's an eccentric Vietnam vet and is surrounded by cages full of lions, tigers, bears, and a few, few cubs running around his house. Um, Emily, I read somewhere that you got the idea for this, for this extraordinary and wonderful novel um, about 10 years ago. Where, what happened? What, where, what prompted this, <laughs> this creation? Um, yeah, well, I mean, without giving too much away about the actual story, um, it was prompted, the initial kind of seed was inspired by a real news story that I mm -hmm. read about a guy who had this uh, incredible menagerie of, of live exotic animals and this was the pre pre tiger king days so this was the first i'd kind of heard of this strange world um, that exists in the states uh, where people collect exotic animals um, and this was not um, a good news story it was a pretty sad story um, and again without giving too much away but it just sort of sparked something in my imagination something about um 
I mean, I knew already that I wanted to write a contemporary novel for my second book and I was thinking a lot about just the the sort of strangeness of the time we live in and something about this, you know, image in this story of, you know, a guy collecting, I think he had, you know, 56 or, or more wild animals and it just seemed to me to kind of be emblematic of something you know, uh, the the apex of consumer culture and, you know, the, the strange relationship we as humans have with ideas of kind of nature and animals and, and the wild. Um, and so it just, I don't know, it, it just set something going in my mind. And that was in 2011. And basically I've sort of been mulling over it and, and writing it since then. So, so this was um, you got this idea before you you would have finished the strays, presumably. Yeah, I think so. Um, the strays came out in two thousand and fourteen, so I would have been working on the strays, and I think I just sort of filed this away as, you know, I, I don't know if if you've had this experience, but where you just something just sticks in your mind, and and it just feels like it speaks to you on some level and I just knew I have to write about this but, um perfect I, perfect for a novelist yeah <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I do have those experiences quite often but it's working out which are the ones that you know uh, are going to stick and so so was that um given given that you were still working on the strays and then the strays came out and was very successful as I say won the Stella is it of some comfort to have something in the back of your mind that you're turning your attention to? It is, yeah. I mean, I think um, I'm kind of, I'm not the sort of writer that has a problem with ideas, which is good and bad probably. I think my problem is that I have too many and I'm, I find it hard to stick to something. Um, once I start a project, I I get this feeling that I hit a certain point and I'm like, oh, but that other idea is so much better. I should just skip to that one. But um, I, I have a lot of things sort of bubbling away in the background and, you know, it's about letting them sit and seeing which ones, you know, rise to the surface because you have to, you know, for me, especially with that issue that I have, I need <laughs> to have a certain sort of power or magic in my mind that is going to last the duration of the long writing process. So how, how do you actually, you know, how do you decide that? How does, how does the idea for Wild Abandon stick? Mm. How do you know that it's worth seven years' work or however many years you've been on it? I mean, I think there's two things. One is just the feeling, um, the the sort of fact that my mind just kept returning to it and it seemed uh, that particular, you know, story and the, I guess, the symbolic um, resonances or the, you know, big ideas that it seemed like it gestured to or tied into for me um seemed you know really rich and I just kind of got caught up thinking about all of those things so that's probably that is the the most important thing that I become kind of obsessed with it mm. but um uh <laughs> I forgot the second part so, um <laughs> yeah I think there, there tends to be also for me several threads that somehow come together and 
at the start, I'm never really sure how that's going to happen. So with this, there was that story about the guy in the US with his uh, menagerie. And then I, I also knew I wanted to write something about the relationship between Australia and America. So that sort of fish. Um, I wanted to write, you know, again, about our contemporary time. Um, and I wanted to kind of write a sort of quest novel. Um, I've always been really fascinated by the, you know, the hero's journey, those kind of classic masculine quest narratives, sort of both seduced by them and also kind of um, reading them in a critical way and thinking about how they have a very particular um you know, philosophy behind them, an idea about the world and what it is to be an individual in the world and particularly a young man. And, and again, you know, because I was working in um, the bar I co-own at the time, I was surrounded by young men that I was working with. <laughs> and so I just sort of also became really interested in, you know, what young men now are kind of doing and thinking about and where they want to travel and, yeah, yeah. yeah. So were there lots of people at the bar who will say, oh, that, that will, he's based on me? <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> I think I've disguised him enough. <laughs> he's also got definitely got elements of me as well. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's interesting. Tell us what the time you, you talked about, um, wanting to talk about the time we live in. Mm. What What is troubling you about the time that we live in? And what made um, Wayne's Wayne's world, for want of another <laughs> uh, want of another phrase, so so, so appropriate mm. um, for that consideration? Um, I mean, I think that's a, a big question, um, but probably the main sort of feeling that I wanted to capture about the time we live in, and when I say we, you know, it's very much the sort of overdeveloped Western hyper-capitalist world mm. that it's, mm. you know, evoking here. Um, I guess something about the energy of that I try to kind of imbue into Will's journey, which is this sort of onward rushing, um, you know, just throwing himself into consumption and hedonism and trying not to think about the, you know, the kind of looming crash that is sort of rearing up behind him, um, I guess, functions in a way as a, you know, a metaphor for how I feel like a lot of the world is kind of going right now, just carrying on, um, you know, again, being part of that sort of Melbourne food and drink culture. I was sort of surrounded by that sense of, um, you know, consumption, consumption, more, 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 make the, you know, the, the culture more and more niche and specialised and, you know, and I see that in the, the art world as well, which sort of comes into it. Um, yeah, just this feeling of rushing forward and and losing ourselves in, you know, it's like the party at the end of the world, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. But also the strangeness of, of a lot of the kind of 
culture um, in these days of the sunset days of capitalism. Mm. Mm. Um, when, when I spoke to you after you won the after you won the Stella, and I, this is going back to my 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 observation that in fact there are although superficially they seem very different books it seems to me that there are um, distinct similarities or, or similar elements that are similar yeah. in 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 them both when when i spoke to you when you won the won the stella um you said you you were very interested in um people who uh, do the utopian sort of thing mm. and the idea of the extraordinary and the ordinary mm. and it seems to me that in, in a sense, um, Will is like Lily in that he's entering into this extraordinary world and letting the world sort of take, take him over. And, and, and Will seems to me to be, he is an ordinary boy, isn't he? Yeah. And he's opening into this sort of, ex, into this extraordinary world. Um, do, you, do, do, do you see those similarities between the two books? I mean, would you, um, or do you think that they are they are completely different books? No, no, I definitely do see those similarities, and I think, um, you know, it's probably a deep preoccupation of mine that, mm. you know, I guess that um, questions of what sort of life does one decide to lead, um, what are the choices, especially, you know, in that period of your life where you're young in you know sort of late teens early 20s um but also the I guess the sort of conflict between the individual and society and you know not to get too serious but you know those real kind of big questions of what is the what's the point of it all um that will is sort of ultimately I think wrestling with and that Lily was wrestling with in the strays and I think probably you know those questions do really preoccupy me as a writer and I'll probably keep <laughs> obsessing about those those yeah. questions yeah so um will uh will commits himself to saying yes to everything uh, pretty well and it is it is a very um I'm trying to think of it's it's quite a lush book in that sense it's quite a um it's a dramatic book and uh, it's a, also a book that is written in a very very different way from the strays where the strays is the language is simple the sentences are short um and then you get to wild abandoned and it's um you've abandoned that that <laughs> style completely i mean you in the back of the book i think you describe it as baroque uh but you you i, I just i'm very interested into in in, in the your choice of style because mm. as i say your sentences i mean there are paragraph long sentences um and i i i wondered why you chose to write the book in that fashion. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I do love um, a more sort of elaborate style as a writer um, and I think, you know, I was keen to sort of push myself and experiment with style but also very much 
for a purpose. I mean, I think um, I don't, I'm not an advocate for style, just for style's sake. Um, and I guess the reason I wanted to sort of have this somewhat, you know, excessive style in parts um, was to kind of mirror the, you know, the content, I guess, that that the, the feeling of the book is one of, you know, uh, almost excessive um, lushness, if um, to use your word, or um, I'm know, not sure that lushness lush is right, but um, <laughs> hyper, hyper um, saturation or yeah, something like yeah. that. Um, it's sort of full of things as well, um, objects and food and and description and um, mm. and I, I kind of wanted to do that partly to you know as I said sort of represent that that strangeness and excess of the the world that we live in but also I think um to try and sort of capture that feeling of Will's absolute kind of sense of being overwhelmed by his first overseas trip you know that feeling of just being completely kind of consumed by experience and newness when when you're that age and you first go overseas um, but then also I guess I really started to have fun as I went along with sort of playing with different registers. So there is that kind of high style, the, the Baroque style, but then there's a lot of dialogue um, and a lot of sort of, you know, slangy kind of um, language as well. So I, I, I started to really enjoy having those two things sort of mashing up against each other. Um, and I think then there's also the element of the the style sort of creating a, a certain distance from Will as well as the protagonist because, it, you know, it's not first person, it's very close third person. So a lot of the time it sort of feels like we're seeing things through Will's eyes but then, you know, the style or the language or the, the narration um, creates a certain kind of distance from because Will as not, well. Because it's not Will's language. It's not Will, it? yeah. No, you can't imagine him no. talking in the same way. No. And the other interesting aspect of, of the way you wrote the book was, was uh, I thought, was firstly how you introduce other people's perspectives, just mm. sort of two or three paragraphs of somebody giving their impressions of will or what's going on. And then even occasionally you have, um, you know, a bit of authorial comment. Um, certainly there, there are moments when when you sort of chip in in, in your authorial voice. Uh, and, and tell me about the development of those two aspects of the style. Yeah, so again, I think um, they both sort of serve that similar function of creating the sense of distance from will um, and it sort of relates to what I was uh, talking about earlier about my interest in that quest narrative you know the the sort of masculine quest which is kind of a you know narrative form as old as story itself you know there's always a, a young man going out into the world to find his fortune and I wanted to kind of inhabit that form but also sort of uh play with it and play with it with a sort of slightly critical um through a slightly critical lens and so I guess those points where either you know the narrator 
sort of comments directly on Will or says something quite direct about him, you know, they kind of remind the reader that he's a character um, in a in a narrative. He's a you know a protagonist, so as well as a kind of quote real person, which obviously <laughs> he's not. Uh, he is also a sort of a type. He's the the young male hero going on his quest um and then I think that the other parts that you um mentioned which I call for myself swivels where you know you sort of go sort of drastically away from Will's the, the kind of close third perspective focused on Will to another character again still into the third person but seeing him suddenly from someone else's perspective um, yeah, I just really wanted to sort of jolt the reader out of that feeling of kind of identification with him at those points so that you suddenly see him from another point of view. Um, and I guess that's another thing that seemingly is quite different from the strays, which was in first person, but is a similarity in another way because I'm I'm really interested in, you know, um, the reader's relationship to the main protagonist and whether they are sort of a, you know, in, in a first-person narration, whether they're a reliable narrator or an unreliable narrator. And here, even though it's not first-person, um, you know, kind of playing with that sense of either really close identification with his view or or not breaking that, mm. seeing him as, you know, someone else sees him and suddenly going, oh, the way he sees the world is actually utterly different from how everyone else is perceiving it around him and of course i i don't want to um um bring in any spoilers but later in the book we get um a different perspective of his breakup and the reasons for his breakup um and it does change our view of him a bit doesn't it mm. Well, I'm I'm glad it did change your view. <laughs> oh, certainly I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> it would be um, it would be hard. I mean, I started off thinking, oh, Will, you know, he's he's young, he's, uh, and I think Marcus, one of the gallery owner in New York, who when he meets um, Will, I think he he calls him a a true naive, mm. um, you know, and and that's what he seems to be uh, initially and and you you cut as a character you cut him a lot of slack for that I think. yeah but yes one's point of view or one's opinion changes I think I'm always interested in the relationship between a writer and his or her protagonist mm. and and I wondered did you did you like will and did he live for you off the page almost? He certainly did live off the page for me, um, although I'm not really one of those writers that kind of subscribes to that idea that, you know, characters talk to you or, you know, do things that, you know, are completely surprising to the author. I mean, he's, I made him up. Um, <laughs> I made him do what he did. but. Um, yeah, I definitely became very uh, involved with him and, you know, um, both found him kind of irritating and 
pretentious and and frustrating, but also, you know, I I really um, am quite fond of him and um, I think just tried to sort of treat him with empathy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sounds really weird talking about my own character in this way, but... Yeah, but I, I mean, I remember talking to, um, I remember talking to that British novelist, um, Graham Swift, mm-hmm. about uh, a, a lovely novel he wrote called Mothering Sunday. Mm. And he, he said he could imagine walking down the street and bumping into his main character. Mm, she was so, so real for him. Um, and yeah, I thought that was lovely. But then other yeah. people say, oh, no, you know, as soon as I finish the book, they're dead to me. I control them. They're at my mercy. Um, you know, they're just there to be moved around um, for my own purposes. I miss I miss my characters when I sort of finish. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Because, you know, you feel like you kind of spend a lot of time <laughs> yeah of them. course of course do you wonder what they're doing no. <laughs> maybe not quite that far <laughs> <laughs> so um will goes off to ohio to and and falls in with with wayne and i'd love you to talk a little bit more about um the research that you you i imagine that you had to do uh, to get to create this this extraordinary world in in which he finds himself, and that whole world of of people having exotic animals. Mm. It's a it's a very strange world. Um, yeah, so I I went down a complete sort of rabbit hole after uh, reading that news story that I mentioned, mm. and did a lot of research uh, on that particular story the man that was kind of at the center of that story and then just more broadly on the the whole kind of scene of exotic animal collection um and i i actually got some funding to um travel to the states to go to ohio and i spent time there and went to um I went to a, a sort of res- a rescue sanctuary or a you know animal sanctuary where they had a lot of animals rescued from um, private zoos and, and private owners, um, and you know spent time observing the lions and tigers and things, um, and that was really important because I think you know there's a part of you know the that world um, and and what it represented for me and why it was so kind of compelling for me um, that is not just about the sort of strangeness and the, you know, kooky, uh, like this is the extremes of American um, kind of conspicuous consumption, but but Mm. something more than that, which is about the animals themselves, you know, and the absolute sort of power of, of those animals and their incredible you know beauty and and you know there is something really amazing about sort of being close to a tiger and and observing it and you know I guess that was one of the other things that really struck me about the the initial story was um you know these uh highly endangered animals particularly the tigers that that this guy that the the new story was about had 18 of I think um and and I did read that um I mean it's it's impossible to really know how many uh wild animals are kept 
um, as pets in the US, but some estimates say that there's far more than there are, you know, in the wild. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, so it's just it's such a strange thing and, you know, it, it really um, made me think a lot about, you know, what is it about um, the fascination, the human fascination with wild animals and I mean I think it's pretty self-evident when you are up close to those animals they're just mesmerizing how close did you get to a tiger <laughs> I mean you talk, talk about being up close well I wasn't in the cage um <clears throat> right. but yeah <laughs> but they were just you know it wasn't like the the zoo here where there's a, a big moat around the tiger enclosure it was right you know right there against the wire and you didn't actually go to any of the private zoos, did you? No. Well, by the time I got there, I think a lot of the legislation had been changed quite drastically, um, partly because of the, the um, incident that was the spark of this book. Um, so there was quite a lot of sort of um, changes in, you know, the laws around the animal ownership, which is probably why a lot of the animals had gone to this sanctuary mm. as well. Mm. Mm. I mean, it is uh, the picture of um, Wayne Gage and his animals is is sort of on the one hand, it's wonderful, and on the other hand, it's it's horrifying. Yeah, that um, that he could have them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but the way you the way you write about the animals themselves is it's clear that they um well in obviously in what you found in ohio and getting close to them they made a, a very big impression on you yeah they did um and i think you know particularly the knowledge that you know they are close to being extinct particularly mm. you know certain species of tigers and just the you know, that deep sadness of that as well, yeah. And, I mean, has, has this changed, has it changed your view at all about public zoos, for example? And do you have a, do you have a view on those? Um, I mean, I think I've always had a pretty um, ambivalent feeling about public zoos. You know, there is that aspect of, you know, breeding programs and, and things like that that, probably increasingly important as you know habitat dwindles but um I think this you know that that human kind of obsession with going and looking at animals in cages is is a I mean I think you know my stance as a writer tends to to be not so much like that that's a terrible thing or that's a great thing but just it's fascinating to me it's you know it makes me think about well what is that you know what is that about why why do we take our kids to stare at all of these different animals in cages and what does it kind of give us as humans the feeling of being close to wild animals even in that context let alone having tiger cubs running around your lounge room <laughs> yes I mean there are some lovely scenes with with both the with the tiger cubs that that um Wayne is is bottle feeding and 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 Will falls very very um, much virtually in love with a a, a lioness mm. it's a cub a cub yeah. um, and the monkeys as well um, but you have um, it's interesting because Wayne is a, is a somebody who has 
uh, I guess he has uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Um, for, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want us to give anything away in the novel, but um, the picture of Wayne is is um, must have taken some some drawing, I would say. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I did do lots of research into the you know the real character of that story, but then mm. you know as I did with the strays, sort of took all that and sort of put it to the side and made up my mm. own character. But yeah, I did lots of research into you know the Vietnam War and um, you know read lots of sort of accounts by because uh, he's a, a helicopter door gunner um in the in the novel and was in Vietnam so yeah read lots of accounts of people who were flying Hueys and and all of that um yeah I mean Wayne is another character that just has really sort of stayed with me and and I feel kind of a lot of empathy towards even though he's in some ways you know very very flawed he yeah oh, he is he is flawed but the flawed characters are the best characters I think, really <laughs> and he is I mean he's a fantastic character he really sort of lives um, you know I mean I don't think I've encountered anybody quite like him in in fiction um, you know will the the young man endeavouring to um, gain experience and new um, extreme experience is one thing but. Um, uh, the Wayne character is is fantastic, I think, in in terms of his uh, originality and his his eccentricity, and but also there's a I mean, in your portrayal of him and his relationship with um, the wife of Will's friend uh, JT, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of tenderness there. I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, hopefully there's this kind of tenderness between all the characters even though there's a lot of complicated relationships mm. between mm. them um you know even between say Will and his parents I think pretty much between any two characters in the novel there's a kind of ambivalent relationship of sort of simultaneous tenderness and uh, antagonism. Mm, mm. I mean, there's some irony, isn't there, in, in the sense that um, possibly Will is repeating his father's uh, path mm. and um, experience, life experience and, and, and his father's life experience is something that deeply irritates will as well <laughs> yes. so there's there's a there's um there's an irony in that I, I i thought um but the 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 portrayal of of um will's relationship with his parents is quite i mean it's at times it's what happens is is quite brutal um not not literally physically brutal but um emotionally brutal and i think um the deafness with which you you um, give us a different later a different uh, point of view is is really key to to understanding Will, I guess, and um, the, the the sort of person he really is. Yeah, um, I don't know what Will's going to do later in life. <laughs> He's got some some big. Uh... <laughs> Big choices ahead of him. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. So um, 
you in, in effect it's seven years since um since the strays came out were you were you working on this the entire time on um, and off not really because i uh, i opened uh, a bar six mm-hmm. months after the strays came out and then i basically just spent two years working in the bar it was meant to be a, a really clever way of setting myself up so that i could work nights and then write in the day but mm-hmm. i ended up working you know 70 to 90 hour weeks in the bar <laughs> for two years and got no writing done but um so it probably a very yeah. nice bar though <laughs> thank you <laughs> um sorry go on <laughs> no no um yeah so there was a couple of years where I got no writing done yeah. um probably yeah a good two and a half years I'd say after mm. the, the strays came out which did uh cause me a lot of angst <laughs> did it uh, I I mean the the, the difficult uh, second novel syndrome um you must have sort of started worrying yeah I did um but I guess I got to a point where I thought well I'm clearly not going to be one of those writers that puts a book out each year, so I'll just have to <laughs> come to terms with that. Yes, yes. And and so so after a couple of years, you you started you returned to the idea of of the idea that grew from the article. Yeah, yeah. And um and then I just tried to sort of have a, a writing routine where I wrote during the day and worked at night and then I was um, fortunate enough to get uh, an Australia Council residency in Rome. Um, They have an apartment there and that was a six-month residency and that kind of changed everything really. I Mm. had to do a lot of wrangling to get away from the bar Uh, but once (laughs) I fled the country, I, I, um, yeah, I got a lot done there. I think I wrote about 50,000 words while I was there and sort of pretty much finished off the first draft. And after that, you know, I could actually feasibly do the editing while. Mm. So at what point during the writing did you go off to the States and, and um, you know, visit uh, the sanctuary in Ohio, in Ohio? It was actually quite early on. I was sort of surprised looking back because um, I was looking back at my photos of that trip recently and it was... Um, it was late 2016, early 2017, so uh, it was really sort of right at the start of the process of writing the book. So you didn't have that terrible experience of sort of being well into the book and going off and doing some <laughs> a particular bit of research that, that then resulted Destroyed in you having everything. to change the whole thing, and that would be... Uh, that would be an absolute nightmare. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I didn't actually write. I don't think I'd written any of the Ohio section before I mm. went there, so that was mm. that was lucky. <laughs> and and have you got um, so have you got an idea that you've had in your head for the past ten years um, <laughs> for a third novel? I've got a couple that I'm sort of just feeling my way around and um, waiting for one of them to stick its head up and say this is the one to focus on for the next however many years and and how has um obviously in in melbourne for for those of you who aren't uh in melbourne uh, in victoria we've been in lockdown for a long time Mm, how uh, how has that impacted on the whole process Um, i mean i'm assuming that 
most of the writing would have been done. Yeah, would have been done was, and dusted. But the, the whole sort of editing dusted. process happened yeah. during um, lockdown. So that was actually quite, I found that quite challenging. It was it was a very valuable thing to go through, though, because I think um, uh, I've always harboured these fantasies of, you know, oh, imagine writing was the only thing I had to do and I could just do it every day and not think about anything else. And I had to do the, I was doing the structural edit, which was I did do quite a lot um, of work on the book at that point. So I had a few months and I really had to knuckle down and I did have that space because it was the long lockdown last year uh, where I could just get up and go to my desk every day and potentially all day every day and I found that really not productive (laughs) Um, (laughs) totally punctured that fantasy which is good a good thing to have happened because it's just I think it made me realize you know it's not a good thing to um just have the writing and nothing else Mm -hmm. um I had I started to feel very stale and want you know some actual real life to then inflect the writing or you know take a break and see people and or just change locations (laughs) Yeah, yeah yeah of course of course and so um actually publishing the book during lockdown Mm. has that um really, really, I mean, obviously, uh, you wouldn't have been able to have um, an in-person launch. Yeah. But has has it impacted significantly in terms of the publicity you've been able to do? I mean, to be honest, I don't really know um, the full extent to which it's impacted. I mean, I think the um, my publisher, Alan and Unwin, uh, have kind of had enough time during lockdown to sort of work out the the best ways of going about publicising books now. But I know, you know, it's very, uh, it's been very tough for bookshops, which is why, you know, initiatives like this, Melbourne City Reads are so good. Absolutely. Um, You know, for me, I just, I really um, wish I could go in and see the book on a a shelf and, you know, those kind of uh, books store visits that I got to do for the strays talking to booksellers like that's one of the most enjoyable parts of the process for me because booksellers are such great people (laughs) (laughs) they can just rave about books for hours and uh, I love talking to them but um yeah it's very very strange the you know the um sense that your book's just kind of going out into the world and to potentially avoid uh, not having any kind of interaction with people who were reading it. It's and, and and talking about the book going out into the world, is there, are there plans for publication in the US? Not at this stage. Um, it's actually been interesting. So far, my agent has not um, found a publisher in the US and I think um, there's been maybe a bit of kind of reluctance to embrace a story set in the US by an Australian writer, which um, mm. I found interesting. I mean, I hadn't sort of really thought about it um, that much, to be honest. I just sort of wrote the book that I wrote. But, um, yeah, I, I did kind of maybe assume that, oh, it's set in the US, it'll be easier to publish mm. overseas. but. Mm. Uh, I think, you know, maybe there's um, 
a sense of kind of resistance to foreigners writing about US culture, although, you know, I wouldn't at all say that I'm trying to kind of draw some accurate representation of the US. It's more about, you know, the the very fantasy of travel that can never be an accurate uh, understanding of of the real place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, uh, earlier on, you, you said that you wanted to write about um, Australia's relationship with the US. Mm. Um, what was it, though, that particularly intrigues you about that relationship? I mean, it's obviously it's in the news an awful lot, yeah. uh, our relationship with the US. What, what, what aspect of that fascinated you? I mean, I think it's partly just the, you know, um, the nature of US culture that does fascinate me. It's such a sort of rich, um, mixed, conflicted sort of culture right now, I think. But also I think what interested me was the relationship between Australia and not just the US but Australia and the idea of a kind of cultural centre located elsewhere and part of what sort of was one of those early threads that that um, led me into this project was, again, kind of working with those young guys at the bar, just hearing them kind of talking about where they wanted to travel and having this sort of realisation that, you know, the cultural centre had kind of shifted from, you know, Europe or or the UK. So even when I, you know, first left school and was thinking about those first travels I was longing to go on, it was to Europe and, you know, I had lots of friends that went and worked in a pub in London for a year or, you know, that kind of thing. And it just really struck me as interesting that that's, you know, in quite a short period of time um, that that has seemingly, I mean, it could be partly that that circle because it was in that, you know, hospitality world and and young guys that are sort of interested in cocktail culture and, you know, that sort of thing. But um, you know, the, the prevalence of US popular culture as well in Australia, even in terms of things like the food that we eat and, um, you know, the music we listen to and, and all of that it just struck me so much that that America is the, the place that is the most influential, but, but also that there's maybe something about Australian uh, culture that looks to that elsewhere and uh, whether that is Europe or the US there's still a kind of a dream of an elsewhere that you know provides a more authentic location of culture and cool and you know it's the kind of classic cultural cringe that you know I think people sort of say is no longer in existence but I think it is personally Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Definitely. Mm. Definitely. Well, um, Emily, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, uh, Will's Will's trip to to the US, his exploring, his exploration there um, in wild abandon is is wonderful and says a lot about Australia and America and young men and traumatized men as well. so thank you very much. It's, uh, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you.
And I should say that um, the, 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 this is a conversation, as I mentioned earlier, as part of the Melbourne City Reads initiative, which is supporting uh, bookshops within Melbourne City. And um, the paperback bookshop is um, the bookseller for this conversation. So if you if you want to go and buy Wild Abandon, and I re really recommend that you do, uh, you can get it from the paperback bookshop or indeed any other Melbourne bookshop. And very Thank soon you. you can actually walk in and get it. That's How right. exciting is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a great prospect, isn't it, to be able to browse the shelves oh, again. <laughs> I cannot wait. <laughs> I know. It's going, to be, it's going to be very dangerous, though, because there are an awful <laughs> lot of new books out there. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Emily. Thanks so much, Jason. That was Jason Steger in conversation with Emily Bitto for the Wheeler Centre podcast. You can find more from the Wheeler Centre by visiting wheelercentre.com.